A Pan Am Stratocruiser is starting an around-the-world journey, but they do not get very far. What caused this flight to disappear from radar? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. And I'm tired. <laughs> Me too. It's been a weird week of work. It, yeah. Amen to that. We have a lot of patrons to thank and a lot of new patrons. Yeah. Let's bring up the list. Okay. So thank you to our new patrons. Aliska, Aiden, Liza, Kenneth, Kenneth, and half. Half. Yes. Half. Yes, there are two Kenneths. Yes, they are the same tier. Thank you thank so you. much for becoming patrons. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank, yeah. Thank Thanks. you so much. Uh, sorry that we didn't get to that earlier. I realized that while I was doing the editing editing the other day, I'm like, oh my gosh, we haven't thanked all our new patrons. It's okay yet. because we've had more. Yes. Like yesterday. So. So if we good. skipped your name for whatever reason, feel free to yell at us. We'll thank you on the next one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, I also had another thought. Oh, if you want to hear part two <laughs> of, oh. of our trip. <laughs> That's uh, going to be the post episode for this episode. Yeah, we'll be the because post episode post we, episode. we covered the cruise and it took two hours. Yep. And that was enough. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, I'm done. <laughs> we were I'm hungry. hungry. Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were just done. So. so if you want to hear about the portion on mainland Europe, Listen to the post episode after this one. There's some stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh. One. The worst part of the entire trip is in this part. So <laughs> everything prepared. everything still worked out, obviously. We're here. Uh, obviously we came home. <laughs> and our bags came home with us. Yeah. So that wasn't the bad thing, but we'll get to the bad thing. There's lots of stuff. That. Lots of stuff to talk about. Good stuff too. Good grief. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's all the housekeeping, right? Oh, uh, before we go on. We will do a listener episode this month. Yes. Uh, it'll probably be toward the end of the month. So if you want to uh, put any more stories in there, I'm going to say final call for that is maybe... Probably this episode. Probably this episode. Because not only is there stuff going on with them being at work, but I get to go back to work in a few weeks as well. So Right. Um. So this episode premieres on the 19th. Okay. Yes. So it's probably a good time to probably say. Probably a good final call ish. Like, get it in before the episode airs next week because we'll probably record either the weekend of this episode airing or the weekend after, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. So, either way, get it in sooner rather than later because sometimes people submit stuff and we actually have to leave it out till the next time we do one because it wasn't in on time. So, right. Anyway, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Pan Am Flight 7. Thanks to... Chris! Chris. Thanks, Chris. Uh, be prepared for the next three episodes to all be from Chris. Excellent. The, it's a chunk. Okay. This one won't be too long, but it's kind of interesting. Kind of strange. The story is short, mostly because it's also very short in the report. So, this occurred on November 8th of 1957. This is rather confusing because the report... It's in UTC time. Okay. I hate it. The accident was actually on November 8th, even though it says in the report November 9th, but that's only because it was on UTC time. The accident actually occurred 
in the early morning of the 9th UTC. Yes, but so daylight earlier, hours. Yeah, it was daylight earlier. hours of the 8th over the Pacific Ocean. Okay. So. Anyone confused yet? Good. This is a Boeing 377 Stratocruiser. 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 You've been in a Stratocruiser. I have been in a Stratocruiser because the airplane restaurant down in the Colorado Springs is a Stratocruiser. Correct. And you can eat inside the plane. Yes, it's a military it's a militarized version of the Stratocruiser, but it's still a Stratocruiser no less. Food is not recommended. Uh it's not great. It's not amazing. (laughs) It's unfortunately it's not cool for the experience. But yeah. the food's not It's good. a pretty cool restaurant. I used to pass it all the time. I've been in there a couple times. Food was never amazing. That was just unfortunate. I always wished it was better because it's a really cool restaurant. But the tail number on this Stratocruiser was November 90944. So this airplane was also known as Clipper 944 or Clipper Romance of the Skies. Because they this did is that? what Pan Am does. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I it, think I refer to it as Clipper 944 at one point. Probably. That's how it's referred throughout the report. Quite a few times, actually. This is a large piston quadprop aircraft, so piston-driven, but very large piston engines, and there's four of them. This is also a multi-deck aircraft, one of the first multi-deck passenger aircraft in existence. This was meant to be a very long-range airplane. Of course, since this is piston we're talking about, not very fast compared to the jet airliners, but it had range, and so they had multiple decks, but the bottom deck wasn't really a usable for, like, passenger seating or anything like that. It was a lounge. Which is cool. Yeah, but it was, like, a full-blown lounge. Like, they had, like, games, and they had a bar, basically. And, I mean, just literally, like, a place to hang out. That was pretty. That was a pretty neat thing, a pretty nifty thing they had put on the Stratocruiser. This was an around-the-world flight, originating in San Francisco, with the first stop being Honolulu in Hawaii. This is also the leg that we'll be talking about. So they didn't get very far. No. But this is normally a westbound flight. There's also an eastbound one. This is the westbound version, which departs on Fridays and includes 15 stops along the way, all the way around the world to Philadelphia, Hmm. where it ends the following Wednesday. So it's like being on a cruise ship, but you're on a plane. Yes. Except the the around-the-world cruises are like... Literally 180 days. Yes. Well, traveling by (laughs) cruise ship is way more complicated than airplanes. Yeah. (laughs) But this, the benefit of doing a flight like this is that passengers on these flights could choose to extend their layovers in any of the cities, any of the 15 stops along the way until the next airplane came around basically a week later and got them. Or sometimes Pan Am had other flights from some of these cities that could also get them out of there if they wanted to. But basically the gist is they could stay in any one of those 15 stops just to enjoy until the next time. Mm. So that was part of the interest of this flight. Take you all the way around the world, but you could also stay in certain places for periods of time if you wanted to. The captain for this flight was Gordon Brown. He's 40 years old. He had 11,314 hours total, of which 674 were on the Stratocruiser. The first officer for the flight was William Wigant, or Wigant. He was 37 years old. He had 7,355 hours total, of which 4,018 were on the Stratocruiser. So much more experienced on the Stratocruiser. Massively more, actually. Uh, Most of his hours, by far the majority, were on the Stratocruiser. The second officer, or the navigator, was William Fortenberry. 
He had 2,683 hours total, of which 1,552 hours were on the Stratocruiser. So now both the first officer and the second officer have more hours on the Stratocruiser than the captain. The flight engineer was Albert Pinataro. He was 26 years old. He had 1,596 hours total, of which all were on the Stratocruiser. So he okay. was a Stratocruiser native. That is all he knew. So... That was an interesting thing. The captain has the least number of hours out of all four on the aircraft type, but the most number of hours total. And as a matter of fact, I think he actually had more hours than the other three combined, or pretty close anyways. At San Francisco, 36 passengers and crew boarded the flight. This was broken down as 28 passengers and 8 crew. The flight departed San Francisco at 11.15 a.m. on the 8th of November. Is that local time or UTC? That is local. I tried my best to do everything in local time. I did not. They do change time zone once. We'll talk about it. The flight was scheduled to arrive at Honolulu at 7.50 p.m. that evening. The filed flight plan had the aircraft cruising at 10,000 feet and a true airspeed of 226 knots. Still a decent speed, but not the basically 600 knots we cruise at now. The planned weight of the aircraft on departure was 147,000 pounds, which is the max allowable for the aircraft on takeoff. Literally, they were right at the max. Yep. This included 13 hours worth of fuel, because it took longer to get places. The flight reached its cruising altitude, no problem. That would be just a whopping 10,000 feet. Yes. You know, this is how things work. All required position reports were made along the way, and at around 3.30 p.m. local time over the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the flight reported to the November, quote-unquote, ocean station, which we'll talk a lot more about later, as being about 10 miles east of that station. They're literally over the middle of the Pacific, somewhere between San Francisco and Honolulu, middle of nowhere. The flight made another normal report at 4.04 p.m. local time, The next reporting point for the flight was due to be an hour later. However, the airplane never checked in there. Uh Uh-oh. 30 minutes after the plane was supposed to report, the flight was considered overdue. And the flight was considered to be missing. Now, they weren't on super high alert yet because it's not entirely abnormal for them to not have made a radio call at some point. But they didn't. And things started to be sketchy. Within... A period of time, a lot more concern grew. Five hours went by, nine hours went by eventually, and then it was very much high alert because that point they would have had no fuel left. Right. And they never arrived. So they were definitely considered missing. Search and rescue operations were activated immediately, including the nearby boats in the ocean, the Coast Guard, the Air Force, and an aircraft carrier, which had aircraft on board, of course, from the U.S. Navy. That was launched from California. The searches continued for five days to find this airplane or anything from it. And on November 14th, the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier came across bodies and wreckage floating on the water 940 miles northeast of Honolulu and 90 miles north of the planned flight path of the aircraft. little explanation for that. So it was the... the U.S. Navy aircraft that actually found them from the carrier, because they were able to cover a lot more ground, obviously, around mm-hmm. the carrier. 
And part of why they might have found them 90 miles away from where they were supposed to be is just drift. Yeah, I, was I mean, it say. had been five days of worth of drift. Current, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so that's a pretty easy one to explain. The next day, even more bodies were recovered for a total of 19 total. Notably, 14 of these bodies were wearing life jackets from the aircraft. So that was interesting, interesting because it that meant that, that they, they had knew, yeah. time. <laughs> to get out, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of strange. The aircraft carrier arrived where the bodies were floating and recovered the bodies and the floating materials from the aircraft. After recovering as much as they could, it was determined on the evening of the 15th, so the second day after finding the wreckage and bodies, that any further searches were futile and the search was abandoned. Basically, they were like, we didn't find much. It doesn't look like there's really anything else to find. That's it. Yeah. The aircraft carrier made its way to San Francisco, where all recovered wreckage was delivered to the Pan Am Overhaul Base, where they literally overhaul engines mm -hmm. such. This is just where they took all of the wreckage that they found. Most of the wreckage that was recovered was of the fuselage secondary structure, interior trim and equipment, and a number of mailbags. All of this was forward of the rear bulkhead, so forward of the rear pressure bulkhead at the back. Yeah. Also recovered was an engine cowl support ring that was embedded in a floating pillow. Huh. But it was impossible to determine which engine it came from. The majority of the airframe and the aircraft were not able to be recovered because they were in 16,500 feet of water. Yeah. So that wasn't going to happen. Unfortunately, it was determined that all on board perished in the accident at some point in time, if not from the accident, after the accident at some point. This investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board. I was going to say the CAB. The yep. CAB. The predecessor to today's NTSB. Two CAB investigators, along with representatives from Pan Am and the CAA, and two pathologists from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, flew to the carrier and had a full day at sea to investigate before docking at San Francisco. They analyzed the fire damage and found that the fire damage occurred on the parts that were floating and only on the parts that were above the waterline, meaning that there was a fire on the surface of the water where impact occurred, probably fueled by jet fuel. Yeah, probably. When tested, none of the charred pieces showed any evidence of prohibited or explosive material. Investigators found no evidence of an in-flight explosion. They verified this by examining the cargo manifests. The only hazardous material was very pure crystalline sodium sulfide, which was properly sealed in glass and then stored in a box with pers per prescribed regulations. This material is normally shipped just like that in airtight containers in its yellow crystalline form, which even when exposed to air is safe to handle and transport. When in contact with moisture, it generates hydrogen sulfide gas. Oh. Not good. But slowly. That gas is toxic, but you're more likely to smell it before it's a toxic amount. It smells like sulfur, like rotten eggs. Yeah. Yep. And there are procedures in place to don smoke masks, depressurize, and ventilate the aircraft. Transporting sodium sulfide by air is not uncommon. So, not really anything to be concerned about. Also on board was a package with a small amount of radioactive medicine. It was sealed in a Babbitt metal capsule one inch long in a hermetically sealed can, then put in a cardboard carton. All per regulations. Okay. Neither of these packages were recovered, but there was no reason to suspect them to be the cause of the accident. The rest of the cargo was mail, baggage, and express shipments, including barrels, 
of tranquilizer. That's lovely. For what? <laughs> Good question. A dinosaur? <laughs> yeah. What requires barrels of tranquilizer? <laughs> Who needs that much tranquilizer? I don't know. I giggled when I read it, too. Including barrels of tranquilizer and several shipments of movie film of the safety type. I don't know what that means, either. What the hell? <laughs> safety type movie? The gist of that, what I believe they're talking about, because it's difficult to transport film, it's very flammable. They have safety type film. That's not flammable? It's not to say it's not flammable, but it's less flammable. Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, investigators decided to just drop it and move on to when the accident happened and if the flight had reached out within an emergency. At 2105 GMT, because I did not even try, the flight made its first routine position report, and it was proceeding as scheduled, and it proceeded as scheduled for four hours until 1.04 GMT, where it reported at 29 degrees, 20 minutes north, and 141 degrees, 35 minutes west. They had radio contact with Ocean Station November at 0030, or 12.30 GMT, and two radar fixes were obtained by that vessel, which clocked the aircraft in as 10 minutes ahead of schedule. Good to know. The board wondered if it was possible for the crew to have sent out an emergency signal after the 104 report that just wasn't heard. After repeated playbacks of the tapes, they found very weak but previously unknown transmissions. They couldn't really discern what was said, though. Investigators spent three months on just this, quote, using various proven and experimental methods as well as the finest equipment, end quote. They were really trying to figure out if these messages came from anybody on the airplane. Yep. They had the flight crew's colleagues try listening to see if they could figure out the quote-unquote abbreviated jargon that was being used, but they weren't able to gain anything from it. Ultimately, the board couldn't definitively determine if any of the transmissions were from Clipper 944. Oh, well. They pretty much wrote it off and said, it mm, probably wasn't. So, dead ends all around. Investigators turned to the bodies with the help of the aforementioned pathologists. They found that of the 19 bodies, 10 probably died from drowning. From the condition of the bodies and the lack of crash-induced mutilation, I hate that phrase. That's horrifying. Yeah. Investigators determined that the water impact, although severe, did not cause complete disintegration of the aircraft. That would be a good assumption to draw, yeah. Life preservers were found on 14 of the bodies, two of them children and one of them a flight attendant who was actually still belted in her seat. Quote, bruises and abrasions on the thighs of the captain's and purser's bodies indicated that their seat belts also were fastened at the time of impact. Similar indications were lacking on other bodies. The medical examination further disclosed that none of the bodies had been subjected to fire before or after impact, end quote. Which is interesting, given that several of the bodies were found to have elevated levels of carbon monoxide. It usually happens after fire. Hmm. It was found that there were several ways carbon monoxide could be generated and distributed unevenly through the cabin, but none of those lined up with the seating configuration of the recovered bodies. And then the carbon monoxide tests themselves came into question. Quote, Medical tests have continued from the time of the accident to the present to verify the initial findings relative to carbon monoxide concentrations in certain of the bodies. These tests, conducted independently by different federal agencies, verified the concentrations as found initially, but raised doubt as to the suitability of any test method because of the decomposed state of the bodies. 
Additional studies are presently being performed, which may answer the question regarding reliability of carbon monoxide results in cases of post-mortem decomposition. But as yet, this question is unsolved, end quote. So basically, they don't know, based on how decomposed these bodies were, if the carbon monoxide was from decomp. I will come back to this. Now for some good old-fashioned detective work to determine the most basic of questions, since we can't figure out literally anything else. Yep. How to determine when impact occurred. Well, the flight reported at 104 GMT, but missed its 134 report. Investigators collected the watches of the recovered bodies and found that the non-waterproof watches showed a stop time of 28 minutes past the hour and had water inside. There were two watches that were automatic winding shock and waterproof watches, and one stopped at 35 minutes past the hour and had water inside. The other was still running when the body was recovered. Hey, get more of those watches. Good watch. The watch that showed 35 minutes past the hour makes sense in that the seal was probably slowly compromised, taking a few minutes to stop working. From these watches, investigators determined that the time of the crash was approximately 127 GMT. That's some old-fashioned detective work. Yes, yeah. it is. And that would have only been 23 minutes after yep. their last reporting point. Investigators continued combing through maintenance records, finding two previous hard landings. Ha. Ha. But both were signed off on after inspection and found to be structurally sound. Investigators asked any flight crew members who had flown in the two months proceeding on that aircraft, and none reported anything strange or abnormal. They further went on to investigate the specific maintenance and overhaul practices at San Francisco Base of Operations for Pan Am, trying to determine if the maintenance was adequate. They found a number of irregularities in maintenance procedures and practices, but because Clipper 944 was lost at sea with no clue as to the nature of the emergency, it was impossible to associate any of these maintenance irregularities with the accident. So let's summarize. No large-scale fire. The only fire evidence was on the surfaces of floating debris above the waterline. So surface fire. The aircraft missed, missed its 134 report, and watches recovered indicate a probable impact of 127 GMT. The aircraft was found 103 miles west of its last reported position, 30 degrees to the right off course. Because we don't know when the descent started, it's impossible to determine airspeed or descent rate at impact. The damage indicates a relatively flat angle of impact as evidenced by the lack of severe mutilation of the bodies. I still hate that phrase. The wreckage came from breakage in the fuselage at the same point as previous survivable ditchings of the same model of aircraft. Hmm. Just how similar? Well, one year prior to this, in October of 56, I believe it was. Let me see. I can tell you exactly. Yes. October 16th of 1956. Isn't that, like, almost exactly a year? It was a month. Oh, It was okay. three weeks. Never mind. Three weeks prior. It was a year and three weeks prior. Okay. So a year and three weeks prior, Pan Am Flight 6 ditched in the Pacific Ocean. And there was actually a picture caught of that. Huh. That airplane actually successfully ditched, however. But broke in the same spots. It did break in the same spots. This one did eventually sink. I think they did manage, everybody managed to survive. The only reason that this one wasn't considered as miraculous as the Hudson is because the airplane did break apart. Break apart, yeah. Investigators couldn't figure out why the plane flew away from the November Ocean Station when they had the capacity to help. A crew flying nearby said the water in the area of November was actually really good conditions for ditching. And quote, seldom had he seen the sea conditions more favorable. End quote. 
So investigators determined that loss of direction control or crew incapacitation had to have been a factor. Otherwise, they would have flown toward the ocean station. Right. Possibilities include, but are not limited to, an object passing through the fuselage. I don't know what that means, and I don't like it. Me neither. Bullets, missiles. Another airplane. An explosion in an engine or wing's leading edge. Or an engine being wrenched from the aircraft, all of which could have led to buffeting. The lack of emergency calls from the crew does suggest crew incapacitation. There are three mentioned sources of carbon monoxide, and two fit the bill and could have happened. The one that doesn't fit was a fire, as we discussed. Mm -hmm. The other two were a propelled object, like a propeller, coming through the fuselage, starting a small fire, knocking out radio equipment, making emergency smoke evacuation procedures ineffective, and destroying the emergency oxygen supply. That's That would take a lot, I feel like, though. It would. My thing about that is how in the heck did they get a piece of an engine embedded in a pillow, though, without something like that happening? So it's not impossible. That could have happened during a ditching, though. Potentially. Possibly, but that would be quite a bit of force... I don't know. Hard to say. Another situation that fits would be a malicious, red, terroristic, introduction of pure carbon monoxide into the cabin and flight deck. Lovely. Carbon monoxide without smoke is indetectable, and this could have led to a full incapacitation. But again, there's every chance that the carbon monoxide in the bodies was just from putrefaction. A recent-to-the-report Navy accident with multiple casualties in similar warm seawater showed that two of the eight fatalities had elevated carbon monoxide levels. In this accident, they also had no in-flight fire, but did have a post-impact surface fire. But at the time, this research was still pending, and they opted to publish this accident report before any conclusion was made. The maintenance history didn't show anything, as we kind of mentioned. There wasn't a bomb. In short... The investigators couldn't determine a cause. Oh, well. Nice. But I wasn't happy with all of these answers. So in doing some quick research of peer-reviewed journal articles, I found several studies stating, quote, The results seem to indicate that the interpretation of carboxyhemoglobin saturation in the blood would not be affected significantly by the post-mortem formation of carbon monoxide. And, quote, Body cavity fluids should not be used for carbon monoxide determination, end quote. So I'm not sure which one was used in the accident report, blood or body cavity fluid, to, for carbon monoxide levels. Maybe they did have elevated levels of carbon monoxide if they found it in the blood. But it seems to be normal for it to be in the body cavity fluids after putrefaction, since that's where gases build up during decomp. Yeah. It is also of note that the colder the water was, the higher the concentration of carbon monoxide and carboxyhemoglobin in both the blood and body cavity fluids. So. Really hard to say. Basically, because we don't know what fluids they were referring to in the report, I can't tell you one way or the other. Fair enough, yeah. If it was blood they were using, yeah, there could have been carbon elevated carbon monoxide levels on board. But if they used body fluids that were in the cavity... That could just be from putrefaction. Yep. So, I don't have a concise answer. But basically, no one knows what happened. Awesome. So, let's take a break. We'll, we'll come, come back, back for, I'm sure, a very short findings, <laughs> etc. Findings and probable cause. Because there's no recommendations. <laughs> Correct. We don't know what happened. <laughs> Correct. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back. Hello. Let's talk about this stuff. The findings, because this is a CAB report, are real short, concise findings. They're very short. So we're just going to go through them, because there's only 14. Good. They found that the crew, aircraft, and carrier were currently certified. Okay. Certificated. Sorry. Gosh. Yeah, same, same deal. Same difference. Why do we have two words for the same thing? Because English is stupid. Yes. They found that the flight was properly planned and dispatched. They found that the gross weight of the aircraft at the time of takeoff was 147,000 pounds, the maximum allowable. Great. They found that the progress of the flight and position reports were normal and routine for more than half of the planned flight distance. Great. They found that shortly after the last routine report, an emergency of undetermined nature occurred. I love that. Undetermined nature. Better than severe mutilation. Yes, that's not great. I hate that word. Yep. They found that this was followed by a descent from 10,000 feet. They found that no emergency messages message was received from the aircraft. They found that some preparation for ditching was accomplished. They found that the aircraft broke up on impact. They found that a surface fire then occurred. They found that weather was not a factor. They found that exposure of the crew to carbon monoxide was indicated, but incapacitation could not be definitely established. They found that no evidence of foul play or sabotage was found. They found that irregularities of maintenance practices and or procedures disclosed during the investigation could not be linked to the accident. They don't really go into detail on that part. They did a little bit, but... It's not... Because it really couldn't be linked, it wasn't really important. But things of note were that they brought that up mostly because the Stratocruiser actually didn't have a very reliable history. Solid. It's not to be it's not that it was the most unreliable airplane in history, but like I said, one year before this, another one of them, another one from Pan Am, ditched. Why did that one ditch? I was just gonna ask that. I don't recall, but what I know is that the maiden flight from Pan Am also had an issue with the Stratocruiser. So it this airplane was just kind of notorious for having issues, and yet they used it for very long-distance flights. Pan Am Flight 6 was a round-the-world airline flight that ditched in the Pacific Ocean after two of its four engines failed. Oh, go. that's nice. This is unfortunately very common with later-era quad-prop large airliners. Yeah. When I say later era, I mean because the jet age was starting about the same time. Mm-hmm. We had the 707 just a year later, really. And for those of you wondering how a picture was taken of it, because I was also confused, it was taken from the U.S. Coast Guard Pont Chartrain cutter. Because it tried to ditch next to a boat? Yeah. That's the gist of that. So. See how that goes. A high-endurance cutter. Okay, well then. So, that's a big part of it. A lot of these late-era large piston aircraft 
had way too many moving parts, and they notoriously failed. Similar things with the DC-6 and the DC-4. Similar things with the Constellation. So, I mean, you know, we're talking about very, very, very complex aircraft, where actually the aircraft we fly these days, you think, okay, they're really complex. But actually, no. By comparison, not at all. Well, we don't use piston <laughs> engines anymore. I mean, we do in GA, but not at this level. Well, you know? like not in like commercial aircraft. Right. Those jet engines are not run by piston no. engines. No. Well, there's, there's, don't get me wrong, like there's a lot of pieces in a, a turbine engine or turbine, but that those parts all move in one direction because they all serve one function. We did cover how a piston engine works. Do I remember what episode it was? Not really. Uh, might oh have been my one. god. It's a 28-cylinder engine. Yeah. You see why there's so many reasons these things can go wrong? Oh my god. Why is it an even number? Because these weren't arranged in like a normal... Radial? Yeah, because these were these were a radial in front of a radial in front of a radial in oh, front of a radial. Oh, good grief. You see why this was an issue? I gotta show you a video sometime. There's this really cool video from United's maintenance from the era mm -hmm. that was in san francisco as well they put together this whole really cool video i think it was, i don't remember if it was in the 50s or the 60s it was in black and white and it's all about you know it was all about united and their brand new big dc6s which also used basically that engine similar anyways and they show you just how flipping complex that engine is and how insane it is so it makes sense that things constantly went wrong with these airplanes. I'm not saying that they were poorly engineered, but I am saying they were over-engineered. Well, There's... and that's what I think we know how to do really well. Over-engineer yes. and then realize, oh, we're stupid. Yep. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Let's do that. That means you have 28 opportunities for a piston to fail. Yeah. On each engine. Yep. <laughs> and they do. Good grief. It's it's all around just ugly. It's an ugly thing. Complete side note, but there were several variants of the Strato Cruiser. Mm -hmm. One of them is a one of a kind. Mm -hmm. It's called the Mini Guppy, and it is found, and we have been in it, or at least Nick and I have, in Tillamook, Oregon. Yes. It looks really weird. At the Tillamook Air Museum. Tillamook Air Museum. It's sitting outside. If you have an opportunity to go there and check it out, it's pretty cool. Yeah, you go get cheese, you go get ice cream, you go get beef jerky, and then you go stare at an airplane. Yep. They eventually made turbine versions of this airplane that were quite a bit more reliable. Yeah, I <laughs> um, bet. So much more so that, very ironically, these airplanes were used... There was the Mini Guppy, but there was also the Guppy. And the Guppy is the larger version there's also the Super Guppy. Yes, the Super Guppy. And the Pregnant Guppy. Right, the Pregnant Guppy was absurd. The Super Guppy is the most common. The Super Guppy, there's still one being used by NASA. It flies around the country all the time for different reasons, but it's a very large cargo aircraft. And the really ironic thing about that is that it's a Boeing built aircraft, and Airbus was the primary user of the Super Guppy. That's hilarious. To move their aircraft parts between say, facilities. Didn't, didn't they use it to move aircraft parts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the way up until they finally decided to start converting some A300s to the Beluga. And then it... I think the Beluga looks so cool. It looks yeah. like an actual Beluga. 
It does. It's really funny. And now they have A330s with the Beluga XL. So that's how they finally got their own product in and replaced Boeing's aircraft in hauling their own. But that was just a really ironic thing. But these aircraft, I mean, they were still workhorse for such a long time. But you really won't find hardly any more Stratocruisers, especially in original condition. If you guys are really weird, want to be weirded out, go look up the pregnant guppy plane. Don't just look up pregnant guppies. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> not, not going to help you. <laughs> but it looks absolutely insane. Anyway, probable cause. Yes. Ha. The board has insufficient tangible evidence at this time to determine the cause of the accident. Further research and investigation is in process concerning the significance of evidence of carbon monoxide in body tissue of the aircraft occupants. What can we say about that? They never came to a conclusion even after that. No, and all of the research I found was from like mid-80s, so yeah, it took some time. Yep. The articles that I found are linked on the website, and feel free to do more research as you will. So one big part of, and the last thing we'll talk about with this accident... One big part of what they thought might have happened, because this wasn't entirely unheard of, be it that we've talked about this before, they looked for anybody who had taken out a very large life insurance policy on somebody on board. Yeah. They looked over the numbers, and roughly, what was the number here? $230,000 worth of life insurance policies were taken out on people on board. This, though, was about the expected number, believe it or not. Well, hold on. What does that come out to in today's dinero? In today's money is $2.4 million. Yeah. That's, that doesn't seem like a ridiculous amount, though. It's not. And that's exactly what they said. So basically, let me see here. This is coming out of the Wikipedia page. But the CAB basically dismissed this as a possibility eventually because they were like, this is a pretty normal number for yeah. a flight of this size. I think normal life insurance today is like 500,000, yeah. half a mil. So, I mean, I mean that's five, less than five people. So right. This is nothing in reality. So, yeah, this wasn't entirely unheard of. That said, Pan Am was so skeptical of this, actually. Oof. They still, they didn't want to take the blame for this, much like they didn't like to do. Right. And they didn't, but they didn't, they so much didn't want this to be their responsibility or have anything to do with them that they were actually, they started getting sued for damages. You can't even sue if there's no cause. For loss, right, but people were still like. People still try. My people, person was on your. They still try to do that. Right, my person was on your plane and they died. It's your fault. Pay me money. So that's, you know. This is how the world works, unfortunately. That's how they always try to get them. Panem, of course, wouldn't pay this money. So their excuse, however, was that you're trying to use the situation. And that is not a good thing. So that was kind of an ugly part of Pan Am. But no matter, they didn't pay the money. And this was something of a bit of a, a lost situation where people were trying to get money out of the situation. And just the same, it actually turned out it was very difficult for some of these people to get life insurance payouts from this accident because there was also no proof what happened. Mm. So. Yes, because if 
one passenger that had life insurance committed suicide, they can't pay out life insurance on a suicide. Right. That's so sticky. Yep. Damn. Yep. Well, that was Pan Am Flight 7. Hey, you remembered. Yes. <laughs> it's a pretty easy one. <laughs> it's one number. It's one number. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Sorry for the short episode. but Also, uh, thanks for the non, like, we still don't know what happened type deal, you know? Unknown. I know on this podcast we try to talk about what changed, but it's nice to have a little mystery. Every once in a while, yeah. If you feel like you want to listen to our second part of our adventure while we were in Europe, remember that is the post episode on this episode. You have to be at least a $5 patron to listen to all that. And then remember stories. Send them in, please. Yep. Thank you. We love getting stories from new people. So if you've never given us a story, please consider doing so. Like we like we like uh, reading stories from people we've never read them from before. Yep. And if you're somebody who's like not even a patron, you've never commented, you've never anything, and you just send us a story out of the blue, we really enjoy that because it's just it's cool to see that you exist. Yes. Basically. Yeah. I just I just had a thought. Not that we've ever had this problem, but please send your story in English. Just, I, I'm pretty sure everyone knows that by now. Just so but clear. Just easier. It's just yeah. Please don't make us translate your story. We will try to if we have. But But if there's phrases like turtle and electricity, that's just what's going to have to happen. (laughs) Make sure you check out the merch page. Speaking of that, we do have a t-shirt that says turtle and electricity on the back. Yes. Yes, it does. And you will only get the joke if you listen to that episode. Yep. Yeah. Which is, it was one of the ones where the pilot got sucked out of the the windscreen. Yes. Sichuan. Sichuan. Episode 82. There you go. Episode 82. So, if you want to hear where that reference is from, there you go. You gotta go listen. It was really funny. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at HardlandingsPod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.